Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Ebeli Grubert, Associate Professor of Sustainable Energy Policy at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. In today's conversation, Emily will walk us through some of the biggest challenges that we might experience in the decades-long transition to a clean energy system. In particular, we'll talk about the investments, policies, and communication strategies that will be needed to ensure our energy system remains reliable and affordable, all while climate change makes everything harder. Stay with us. Emily Grubert, welcome back to Resources Radio. Thank you so much. Glad to be here again. So, Emily, uh, we've had you on the show before, but I think it's been at least a couple of years. I yeah, remember that was pre-COVID. We, yeah, it was definitely pre-COVID. We talked in a hotel room in Boise, Idaho. I That's right. I was trying to remember where it was. It was a good mountain background. It was very scenic. Um, so we're online now, and it's not quite as scenic, but uh, but I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And um, even though you've done this once before, I think it'd be great if you could just remind our audience how you got interested in working on energy issues. I know you grew up in an energy family. Was that part of it? Yeah, definitely. And I resisted it for a long time. But yeah, my dad's a petroleum engineer. My mom's a water resources engineer. And I kind of ended up in a space where I started thinking a lot about the different types of outcomes associated with energy development. And lately, I've been really thinking about deep decarbonization, justice, those types of things. But I think just growing up around the oil industry and moving a lot and seeing that in a lot of different contexts is really where I got interested in this. And then kind of punctuated by a really good field trip based class that I took as an undergraduate where we got to visit a ton of power plants and refineries and stuff like that. So a lot of that really physical piece of it, I think, is what has kept me interested in this. Yeah. And for those of you who don't follow Emily on Twitter, you totally should because her uh, feed is populated with uh, pictures of energy infrastructure from the four corners of uh, of this great country. We drove by a brand new greenfield, what's going to be a 1.5 gigawatt uh, natural gas plant really close to my new house recently. So I'll get that one up at some point soon. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Cool. Well, Emily, uh, you know, it would be fun to talk about um, energy infrastructure writ large. And I guess we're going to kind of do that today in our conversation. You know, one of the things that, that you've been thinking about a lot and that you have a really great paper on with Sarah Hastings Simon is... Uh, this concept called the mid-transition. Um, so in a lot of public discourse on the energy transition, we sort of, we know where we are, we know where we want to be in let's say 2050 or, or maybe 2100, but there's a lot that needs to happen in between now and then, and, and there are a lot of potential challenges. So can you just get us started by defining this term mid-transition and help our listeners understand why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. The way that Sarah and I are using it and trying to kind of uh, promote people talking about this is essentially the period that might be a few decades long where the clean energy system and the fossil energy system are both big enough to constrain each other, but not big enough to handle all energy services on their own. So what we anticipate is likely to happen in that case is that you have both systems relying on each other, but also needing to adapt to each other to maintain operations. We expect that this might lead to some maladaptations, and it means basically that either end of the transition is probably easier than the middle for a variety of reasons. But just as an example, for something like solar energy that's kind of 
you know, comes during specific parts of the day, that kind of thing. You do see solar sometimes needing to be curtailed because there's a bunch of baseload thermal plants that actually need to stay running or it'll be hard to turn them back on again. That's a maladaptation that is sort of there because the solar system needs to accommodate some of the fossil operational constraints. Similarly, you see a lot of gas plants having to ramp up and down very quickly more times per day to accommodate the solar than they would have had to otherwise. So you see these situations where during the transition, both systems actually need to change how they would rather run in order to accommodate each other. Right. Yeah, those are great examples. Can you flesh either those examples or some other ones out a little bit more to help us understand, like, why does that matter? You know, why does it matter for either energy system reliability or costs or safety or any other kind of really important outcomes that we all care about uh, while we're in the mid-transition? Yeah, absolutely. I think from just a really basic perspective, it means that we need to maintain multiple sets of infrastructure at once over a variety of different contexts. So there's kind of the power plant version where a lot of deep decarbonization models suggest that you potentially do need some turbine-based natural gas-fired backup power for a long time because you need something that's able to be both up and down dispatched if the wind is dead or it's a cloudy day or something like that. So during that transition, potentially requiring some ongoing use of chemical energy storage that often gets uh, billed as potentially natural gas. Another example um, from a different part of the energy system would probably be transportation stuff. So thinking about needing to have both gas stations and EV chargers, you don't necessarily get to have much lower density of either one of those just because you have both systems running. So if you have half as many gas cars and half as many EVs, but they're similarly distributed, then maybe you just need both systems for a while. So from just an overall infrastructure intensity perspective, you do see that there are needs for these backup systems or co-operating systems, essentially, that leads you to have more than you would have otherwise needed if it was just one system or the other. From a safety, reliability, all those types of perspectives, I think the other thing that becomes quite interesting here is that you don't necessarily see a lot of planning as to how one system is relying on the other one necessarily. So I think one of the things that I get a little nervous about, this is a normative transition in the sense that we are aiming toward deep decarbonization. So there's kind of a directionality to it. But I think a lot of the clean energy transition conversation assumes that there's going to be a fossil system that's able to kind of catch the system as it's growing, but doesn't necessarily articulate precisely what it needs from the fossil system. So again, kind of going back to the power plant example, if a big build out of wind and solar kind of assumes that there's always going to be a gas plant there to catch it in the event of a really significant problem, that actually imposes some sort of demand on that fossil system that may not be planned for or may not be sort of extremely clearly articulated in terms of what that system needs to be able to deliver. Kind of going back to a recent example that people might be familiar with is during Winter Storm Yuri, there was a lot of commentary basically about the fact that a lot of gas plants couldn't operate for reasons like lack of winterization, um, lack of availability of gas during the storm, that type of thing. But I think that's a really good example of places where people kind of assumed that that system was available to pick up during an emergency, and it wasn't because there hadn't really been a very deep um, evaluation and confirmation that those resources were available. So you could see that kind of thing happening too if we get to the point where you maybe only need some of these backup resources every couple of years, that type of thing. It's really just making sure that everyone knows what is expected from each system, I think is going to be a big challenge, but one that we can probably handle if we plan for it. 
Yeah. And Winterstorm Yuri, for those uh, who might not remember, I think I think that was the winter storm that created the large blackout in Texas last winter. Is that right? right? Yeah. And yeah, so like, let's even get more into the weeds on this particular question. So like, again, imagine let's have a natural gas plant that only runs a couple times a year, right, to balance intermittency uh, in the clean energy system. Talk us through like why that is hard. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, I've had a lot of kind of personal <laughs> examples of why this kind of thing is hard lately. So I will maybe use those like slightly close to home ones as intuition builders. But basically, when you don't turn something on very often, you don't necessarily realize when something's broken. My personal example is we recently resurrected our uh, gasoline car because our EV couldn't make some of the drives that we needed to make when we were moving. And lo and behold, we go to turn on our gas car for the first time in a couple of years, and it doesn't start for reasons that like we've now evaluated. But silly things like, you know, the O-rings are out or some the gas went bad or something like that. I know one of the other examples people often kind of point to is that it's often not clear whether fire sprinklers actually work. If you haven't tested them in 15 years, there's no real reason to believe that necessarily the water's still in there or the pressure's right or all the pipes are right and things like that. So again, these are kind of silly examples, but I think the overall point is if you don't test something very often and then particularly in the case that we're talking about with like gas backup for the power system, you only ever turn it on during the most dire of possible conditions. Like you absolutely need this thing to turn on right now because other things are not functional for a reason. Um, and that reason probably is related to something that makes it harder to do anything you're trying to do. So this thing you don't test very often, you probably don't maintain that much because it's not very profitable because it's never on. Suddenly you're saying, all right, cool. Like in this very, very significant emergency situation, I need you to operate perfectly. No one's done this in a long time. Maybe you have operators that don't even really remember the last time you did something like this. That kind of setting where you have these emergency backup systems that aren't tested very often can lead to some pretty bad outcomes. Again, this is something we can overcome if we plan for it, but just assuming that that's all going to happen and be fine is probably not the move here. Yeah, right. So, um, you mentioned modeling uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how um, large-scale energy system models, you know, the ones that we use to sort of evaluate what the future energy system might look like under different policy mixes, to what extent do they kind of account for these mid-transition challenges that you're that you're talking about, and and why does that matter for their outcomes? Yeah, in my experience, they don't really account for this kind of stuff very well at all. And that's understandable. I mean, these are very, very complex models. And a lot of the time, the question that they're asking is more, you know, is something feasible? Or if we implement some policy, what do we think would happen in a best case scenario? Where we are now, where we do actually have a direction we're going, and we're really starting to take decarbonization a lot more seriously in a lot of the world and in the United States in particular, I think now is the time where we really need to get a lot more specific on some of the infrastructure things. And so some of the work that I've done with students over the last couple of years has kind of pointed this out, but there's not a whole lot of infrastructure awareness in many of the cost optimization models in particular. So you see things like, you know, as long as a plant is perceived to be actually um, meeting its costs with some of what it might be able to make by generating or something like that. There's not a lot of acknowledgement that, you know, maybe there's not a fuel supply anymore because that's not something that's actually all that easy to model when you 
are assuming basically static conditions in terms of how easy it is to access fuel, stuff like that. Or similarly, you may not actually see a lot of the realities of maintenance associated with older facilities going forward. So, for example, like the big U.S. energy systems model oftentimes will assume that power plants stay active for much, much longer than a typical lifespan would say is reasonable. So, you know, you see a model saying that a coal plant might be around for 90 years. That's really unlikely unless you assume a lot of investment and a lot of attention to actually keeping something like that online. So I think in general, just a lack of very specific attention to what is practically speaking likely to happen in terms of the infrastructure support is is a big failure so far. And again, this is something that I think we're kind of at the beginning of where people are really starting to believe that decarbonization could happen. So as we make our models more sophisticated, paying very close attention to where we're assuming kind of ridiculous or extreme outcomes on some of the infrastructure, I think will be important. Right. And would it be safe to assume um, that the outcome of including some of these you know, mid-transition challenges such as, you know, additional maintenance costs or additional, uh, you know, securing of physical energy supplies, are these likely to result in like higher cost outcomes than the current fleet of optimization models might suggest today? It's interesting. I think there's a couple different ways this could go. And I think that there is hopefully some some pretty interesting work starting to come out on these topics. But I think if you assume that the basic structure of what's going on is the same as the models suggest, then yeah, you'd probably expect incorporating a lot of these mid-transition issues to raise costs. What I mean by assuming that the overall structure is similar is basically, you know, if you do assume that you always need a natural gas backup for deep decarbonized power, then yeah, that's probably more expensive than we think it is. On the other hand, because we do tend to look at these as optimization models, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for the outcome to actually qualitatively change. And I know for anybody who's a, an Amory Levins fan, this concept of tunneling through the cost barrier comes up a lot when we think about like deep building efficiency, where you actually are able to spot things that you didn't think were worthwhile necessarily and just eliminate entire systems in a way that potentially makes things cheaper. So the classical building example being if you make your building envelope tight enough, you maybe can get away with not having a furnace or something. And that's a massive cost saving. I think when we look at the overall system, there are potentially some opportunities like that there as well, in the sense that, you know, if we realize that actually keeping that natural gas backup supply with all of the pipelines and all of the extractive activities and all of those very expensive infrastructure systems looking at that and saying, wow, that's that's actually super expensive and we maybe don't want to do that. Let's look instead at some alternatives like making sure, again, that all buildings are super efficient and can handle um, non-coincident load for heating and cooling, for example. Or let's look at a system where we actually assume a lot more distributed energy resources or something like that, where you potentially do see opportunities that are qualitatively different from what the models are showing. So it could be way cheaper, but very different from what we're looking at, or it could be quite similar to what a lot of the models say, but more expensive, as I think where the two outcomes might be. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and that's a, a whole nother conversation, right? We could have this uh, idea that I think I think one time you and I were talking and you said something about like radical efficiency, um, which, uh, which would be a really fun conversation, but we're going to put that on hold for now. So going back to the potential challenges that could arise, um, you know, if we continue going in the direction that we sort of are, or that that some of these models might suggest, um, as we incorporate 
these challenges of the mid-transition, do you think there are implications for like public opinion about energy policy, right? If people experience the energy system behaving in ways that they're not accustomed to as a result of these mid-transition issues, how do you think that could affect just like the way people think about the energy transition? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's actually probably a pretty significant problem and one where I'm, I'm really big on basically trying to be extraordinarily honest with people about what the challenges are that we're facing and then thinking very clearly about how to articulate, you know, this is how we're going to make sure that everybody has the basic services and basic accesses that they need to live dignified and good lives, essentially. Because, yeah, I think that we are likely to see the system be choppier and more difficult and maybe more expensive, less reliable, all those types of things during the mid-transition than it is either at the starting point or the after point. And that's partially because of these maladaptations in the middle, and it's partially because of climate change, quite frankly. I think that we, because we're looking at climate change happening at the same time as this massive technological transition, we're very likely to see people kind of assuming that the very visible infrastructure transition that they're watching happening around them is the cause of problems that are arising. In some cases, that might be fair. Like These are brand new systems that are still fairly immature. We're still learning how to do this, but we're also learning how to do this at a time when climate change is making everything harder. I think seeing those challenges and seeing some of them actually result in things like, you know, maybe blackouts that we would not have expected to see if we were doing this a little bit better or higher costs or spiky costs or big fuel scares or things like that. I think those things may well happen and they may well be the result of either climate change or stumbles as we learn how to operate these systems. Particularly if that's kind of the thing that people see changing is the big infrastructure. I think that there's a very high likelihood that folks will assume that it's the infrastructure and that things are never going to get better. So why are we doing this? Let's go back to what we've always done that seemed to work better. Set aside the point that probably a lot of the systems we have now that we perceive as reliable won't be as reliable and won't be as available going forward, again, because of climate change. There's, I think, again, a real risk that people kind of blame any challenges on the transition itself. And it's really hard to keep trust in those systems for maybe 20 or 30 years to get to that other side where these systems are mature and we are in a situation where we're not having to really cater to these maladaptations associated with managing both systems at once, all that kind of thing. So I think overall, yes, this is a massive, massive risk and being super, super clear with people about how we're actually going to kind of anticipate some of those problems and what we will do under each scenario to make sure that people have what they need is going to be incredibly important to making this work. Whether we can actually do that is a huge outstanding question, but I think kind of pretending that this is something that's going to be super smooth and kind of monotonically better than what we've had before is a kind of grave political error. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I um, when you do talk to you know, some clean energy advocates, you do sometimes get the feeling like, you know, we're about to head over the rainbow or something like that. And, um, and I think pointing out some of the challenges that could arise in an energy transition, it's sometimes met with hostility, right? Because there are real bad faith actors that are out there that are trying to, you know, use any example of a, you know, wind farm or a solar farm having a problem as some evidence that like, we can never get to that place over the rainbow. Um, so this communication thing just seems like such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's what's tricky about it is like everything has negative impacts. And I think that trying to 
pretend that that's not true can be pretty damaging in terms of how people trust you. At the same time, the kinds of negative impacts that we expect from a lot of the clean energy technologies we're talking about probably are less bad than a lot of the negative impacts of the fossil system that we're leaving behind. But yeah, this transition is not a foregone conclusion at all. And so I think really taking people quite seriously and also making sure to be clear about what kinds of things we might see get a little bit worse in the short term in order to achieve these longer term things that we think are going to be really worth it in the long term, like lower water use, lower air pollution, um, quiet, <laughs> less lights, like whatever it is that we're talking about. I think that there are a lot of opportunities to kind of explain, yep, we're anticipating this. This is how we're going to mitigate it during the period where that's true. And then afterwards, this is where we're going and why. Yeah, really interesting. And I mean, just that that basic point of transitions being difficult, I'm reminded of that every time I try to get my four-year-old to do something. <laughs> like when he's doing something, he's happy. When he's doing that next thing, he's happy. But in between the first thing and the yep. second thing, you get lots of challenges. Well, at least with him, it's not 30 years every time. Uh, feels like it though. <laughs> and now I'd like to welcome a special guest who has a message for our listeners. RFF's Director of Individual Engagement, Tommy Wren. Welcome, Tommy. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm here because today is Giving Tuesday. RFF is a nonprofit organization that depends on the support of individual donors to carry on our work. Friends, if you enjoy this podcast and care about bringing independent analysis to the most pressing energy and environmental issues, please make a gift to RFF today or any day. Visit our website at rff.org donate to give online. Thanks, Daniel. Back to you. Let's talk now about some of the policy implications. I mean, you've talked about communicating uh, around these issues, but um, there are surely, you know, policy implications too. So, you know, one of the implications that I think I've heard you allude to, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that as the uh, sort of fleet of fossil infrastructure you know, across a suite of technologies uh, becomes more risky uh, because, you know, there is that risk uh, that, that some of them could become stranded assets. Um, there might be an implication that the government will need to take on more of a direct financial responsibility to ensure that the energy system is reliable and is safe um, because otherwise there might not be enough private sector incentive to continue investing in what could be stranded assets. So can you talk about that a little bit? Am I right in my sort of characterization of it? And how big of a deal do you think that could be? Yeah, approximately, in the sense that I, I'm worried about the general socialization of risk and privatization of, uh, of benefits in, in a broad sense, but also, yeah, in terms of just thinking about how you actually ensure that these systems are safely operated until the very, very last day. I do think there's some coordination responsibility there and probably some opportunities to, you know, not to go straight there, but some of the conversations about nationalization and how exactly those workforces are um, brought through the transition, what pensions look like, that kind of thing. I think that there is a really significant opportunity to really think about what the overall coordinating role of the federal government might be. And I don't mean this in the sense that I think, you know, the, the government should just assume that it should pay for all of the things that should have probably been happening from the industry's perspective the whole time in this particular arena and not others. But this point that we are talking about retiring high hazard industries and we do need them to be available until they're not needed anymore, I think does lead to some pretty deep conclusions potentially about 
who's actually responsible for making sure that happens and who's responsible for making sure that the retirements do actually happen at the end of the day. I think one of the things that I worry about a lot is basically this notion that a rational actor looking at some of these industries might say, you know, of course, I'm not going to start my career in this area. A lot of the time we see people talking about that where, you know, we're training fewer petroleum engineers, we're training fewer coal miners, that type of thing, and see that as a good thing. I think overall, that probably is true that as these industries are becoming less part of what people perceive to be a good future, seeing a lot less attention to massive training programs is probably a good thing. But again, these are transitions that are likely to take several decades. And so thinking about how you get people that are really committed to the transition, but are also trained in the types of activities that they need to do to keep the systems running, you know, the the workforce that we have now is not going to be sufficient to get us to the very end of that. And so we probably do need some new people. So making sure that we have a sense of how the folks that are getting recruited into these industries actually have a transition pathway that's somewhat flexible in timing so that we know that, you know, we could actually keep the systems running and then actually at the end of the day, have people transition to either other jobs or maybe early retirement that's covered in some way that makes it worth entering. I think these are really important conversations to have. I'm personally pretty excited about the notion of really thinking very carefully about what remediation transitions might look like. So in places where you potentially have location matched and skills matched jobs in thinking about how you remediate some of these facilities as they close, that could be enough of an off-ramp for the existing workforces that we have in these areas. I know um, Megan Biven has talked a lot about this notion of an abandoned well administration that really thinks about transitioning oil and gas workers to handling a lot of the abandoned wells that we have in the United States as a way that the government could create both a program for people to actually maintain jobs, but also really deal with a very, very significant issue that we have in terms of remediation. So those types of things I get pretty excited about. But yeah, really thinking carefully about the point that we do kind of need to make sure that these industries are safely stewarded until the very last day without that necessarily leading to the conclusion that we need to expand them is is really tricky. I think the other example where this comes up a lot is, you know, how much do we continue to invest in gas pipelines if those are systems that we expect to go away over the next couple of decades? And we're talking about billion dollar investments to make sure that the pipes are, you know, up to date or whatever. It does become really challenging to kind of differentiate between expansion and safety. That's something that I think is going to continue to be a really hard conversation too. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, when we think about natural gas pipelines, it's what, like over 2 million miles, I think, right? It's, it's either 2 million miles or 3. Do you know what the top yeah, of your head? It's like a few hundred thousand on the transmission side and then the rest of its distribution. And I can't remember exactly yeah. what the number is, but I think you're right. Yeah, it's a lot. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so one last question, Emily, before we go to our top of the stack, and maybe some people who are listening have already thought about it. You know, we've certainly gone through, as a world, uh, a painful period of energy prices and energy disruptions over the last, let's say, six months or so with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, some people, I think, have attributed some of those challenges to um, to the transition, right? Uh, some people... Uh, 
looking to wind and solar as a as a explanation for high electricity costs or looking to government policy as a as a driver of high energy costs to what extent do you think today's energy challenges are related to the mid-transition issues that we've talked about? And to what extent do you think it's something else, like namely the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Right. And what's interesting is I think that those are actually related questions. Like I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine led to some outcomes that are exacerbated by mid-transition issues that maybe wouldn't have been as big of an issue if we had thought about this differently a couple decades ago. So, you know, the... The thing that I think gets really challenging about the mid-transition is that there are a lot of things that become more structurally likely to happen that may have more immediate precipitating factors. So, you know, the the notion that you might see massive price spikes and kind of uneven access to fossil fuels, that's a really predictable thing under mid-transition conditions. In this particular case, it happens to have been precipitated by a war, um, but there are other ways that you could expect that to happen, and it's not unreasonable to say maybe we should plan on that type of thing happening more frequently. Why exactly and what the immediate reason for it might be pretty variable, and you know, of course there are more or less horrible ways that you can lead to those types of outcomes happening, but I think the main point is that during this transition under climate change and all of these things, we probably should anticipate what we're going to do if we do see limited access to resources, big price spikes, that type of thing. Why it happens is, you know, a completely different set of questions. But the fact that it does happen and that it will continue to happen probably, I think, is is cause to really think about how we respond. Yeah, that's super smart, unsurprisingly. Um, is there anything else, Emily, that uh, I should have asked you about that I, that I haven't? I think the only thing, and I know that this is a little bit of a, a drum that I beat, but as we think about the mid-transition happening, I think the the main conclusion that I draw out of the fact that this is likely to be very challenging and that we're likely to see some really potentially very bad outcomes associated with people's personal lives in terms of yeah price spikes or lack of access to heat, that type of thing. In general, I think this should drive us toward being biased towards service provision and really being biased toward making sure that people have what they need to thrive and whether we actually need to think about more creative ways to do that or more structural ways to do that. I think that that's a, a really important conversation we need to be having. And this is part of the reason why I tend to come down on the side of things like, you know, healthcare, housing access, those types of things actually are climate policy. We know this is going to get hard over the next few decades. We know it's likely to be hard in ways that are difficult to predict. And so if we start from a place of asking about how we provide justice and how we provide services that people actually need and really think about that as the core thing we're trying to do, a lot of the other stuff, I think, becomes a lot more clear in terms of what we need to be doing to make sure that those fundamental services are being provided. You know, just in the context of something like a fuel shortage, knowing that we have systems to get people to a heating or cooling center or something like that, those types of things are things we can do regardless of the underlying reason for problems. And they're probably things we're going to need to get better at over time, making sure that people are housed um, and actually have safe temperatures inside their houses. Those are things we can do without necessarily being very, very focused on fuel supply issues. And so I think really making sure that we have all that stuff clear and that we're starting from the presumption that we need to figure those types of things out is going to be incredibly important here. Yeah. And that is a, that's a great note to end on. So 
Emily, let's uh, let's ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests uh, to recommend something that you think is great. It can be related to the environment only if tangentially. Um, that's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. So what would you like to recommend? Yeah, so I recently read Eric Kleinenberg's Heat Wave, which is a really fascinating read for me, just coming from the perspective of having read this in 2022, essentially. But it's about the 1995 heat wave in Chicago. The book originally came out in 2002 and really kind of goes into a lot of the social and structural factors that led to that heat wave being more or less deadly in different parts of the city. The reason that I think it's so interesting to read now is because it was written before climate was a huge point of focus. Like he does allude to it in a few places and it was clearly something people knew about, but it wasn't the driving focus of of why this is going on. But still a super smart read and I think something that's extremely, extremely relevant to some of our infrastructural challenges going forward. That sounds fascinating. And just because I didn't mention it during the show, I also want to call out the title of your paper with Sarah, which is uh, Designing the Mid-Transition, a Review of Medium-Term Challenges for Coordinated Decarbonization in the United States. And uh, we'll make sure to have a link to both that book uh, and the article in the show notes. Uh, So one more time, Emily Grubert from the University of Notre Dame, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. This has been a fascinating conversation and I think something we're going to be talking about for years, if not decades to come. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.